All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Elixir Mix. Today with us on our fabulous panel of hosts, we have Lars Wickman. Hello. Hey, Lars. We have Stephen Nunez. Hey. And we have Alex Kumos. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Alex. And for a distinguished guest today, we have joining us John Lunsford. Hey, John, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really cool that you are here. So do you want to kick us off, John, and maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm the lead engineer, ConvertKit's compliance team. We address spam, abuse, and fraud on our platform on a daily basis. Yeah, and it's quite exciting. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community, and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Cool. And uh, do y'all use Elixir at work? Do you work with it professionally? Is it more of a labor of love for you? Yeah, actually, we don't have it deployed in production at ConvertKit yet. It's just a matter of finding the right service or use for it. Luckily, we're flexible in terms of our technology stack and things we do use. So yeah, at the moment, it's mostly a side pursuit and primarily a learning endeavor. My background is in Ruby and OO. So learning functional programming and in a language that, yeah, is syntactically easier to pick up. That's kind of been my um, forte into it. How's your journey been so far? Really fun and fantastic. It's, yeah, like I said, syntactically, it's, I guess, similar to Ruby, although first trying to write something was very difficult in the sense of I'm just used to being able to mutate everything and script things along if I really need to, to make something work. And yeah, Elixir made me have to think about that sort of thing. So yeah, a little bit of a learning curve for sure. So John, you've written a number of Elixir blog posts, which by the way, I'm always just so happy to see more and more people writing about Elixir and putting them out there. And uh, very excited to kind of share some of what you've written with many of our listeners. But I would love to dig in and learn a little bit more about your experiences building Elixir releases and kind of getting them out into the world. It seems like you've worked with and written a lot about deploying and releasing Elixir with Terraform and with Ansible. Uh, and I've been on some of those journeys myself. But first off, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about what it's like to build Elixir releases with Mix. It's relatively new. That releases are now baked in and you can just kind of mix release and get your app out into the world. So yeah, what's that been like? Yeah, it's it's been exciting to see something built into like the Elixir ecosystem. I was in the process of writing uh, posts using Distillery actually when it, it released. So I kind of changed gears. And yeah, my so my introduction to it was kind of minimal as far as um, kind of doing the minimum steps to get an application online somewhere. I've, I've enjoyed the, the Hex documentation. That's always super useful. And I mean, I basically just went through that word for word and kind of went through the motions there and wrote down things as I as I learned and went through. Yeah, what I like about the flow that you you went with, again, just like a generating a release and then using Ansible to deploy it to an AMI is I feel like it's closer to the way that we want to be able to run Elixir. I think we, we pushed to containerization even at Flatiron School where I'm at. And I think that one interesting bit about doing the 
generation of the release and then pushing it up to an AMI is you can, it still leaves the door open for doing upgrades if you want. It's, it's sort of a nice replicable flow. Did you look at that? Did you look at containerization at all? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Another post I wrote was deploying Elixir with Doku. So that's, you know, the equivalent of using something like, yeah, your own little platform as a service. I mainly did that because it's cheaper to do it on your own. But yeah, so anyways, that's I do deploy applications in a containerized environment. And something about that though, because I've always, my introduction to Elixir and learning about it has, has it seems like releases are the the way to, to do things. Also just kind of packaging everything up in a nice contained tarball that, that deploys and you have everything to run is, is very attractive to me as far as not having to like do all these build steps on the server and things like that, or at least on your... Um, like deployment, like destination, I, I suppose. Yes. So like one of the reasons I, I did want to get a hold of and learn about releases was to be able to try these other features like hot upgrades and also, you know, have distribution be an option um, and not have to do any quirky workarounds with communicating through containers and things like that. That's awesome. One one quick note, just a heads up to save you the headache. The built-in release mix task does not allow for upgrades. You'd have to use something like distillery or something else to... I actually generate that. Yeah, I'm I'm currently battling that right now, trying to get hot code upgrades working in uh, uh, in Kubernetes, and I can tell you it's it's not not fun at all. Yeah. Uh, so definitely, I definitely miss my good old fashioned VM that I can do all these things in. But yeah, uh, that yeah, that was one thing I guess that differs from distillery. While distillery uh, distillery is still a, a pretty attractive tool and is is a bit more robust in that regard being able to generate upgrade releases and things of that sort yeah so i it'll be interesting to see if that's a thing in mix because it also generally like community wise it seems like it's not totally recommended as far as like hot upgrades are such a cool feature you should do it and we'll build it into elixir i'm not i'm not sure about that i always felt that was a bit of a bait and switch Mm -hmm. like upgrades you can have live code upgrades but don't do them ever and you're an idiot if you try Yes. I want to prove that it's possible, though. <laughs> it, it should be possible using mixed releases. You just need to write your own uh, rel up files and app up files and stuff like that, oh, which is uh, distillery, distillery automatically generates those for you. It's kind of like a best guess, though. So if you have really complex uh, gen server up and down logic, you, you're better off writing your own uh, rel ups and app ups. But yeah, that's just one of the niceties that comes with distillery. That or starting and stopping supervisors or adding children to supervisors. Any of those things that are not like just the normal changing the contents of a function body, you kind of have to dive in a little bit, which I think is why they sort of avoid it because it's like it can get complicated really quickly. But it, when you get it, it's magic when you get it working. Yeah, I was, I was trying to demo using this kind of Ansible uh, workflow, doing that and really just having like an endpoint change, like very simple, like no state. So you could at least just go through the motions of, uh, yeah, doing the, uh, calling the upgrade command. So that, I mean, as long as there's this, there's no state you have to transform, then I don't see why, why not, but. And I find the, the happy middle ground to be using either horde or swarm, and then, uh, just adding new nodes, uh, to the cluster and then having, having it all kind of taken care of by transitioning the state from one node to another node. So you could still do rolling deploys. And it's a lot simpler than uh, uh, changing the release in place on, in the uh, container or virtual machine. So lots of options out there. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That, that's one of the other things, too. I've, I've been trying to try all of the like, deployment options with Elixir. Yeah, it, it is one of those things that it has been like, delayed, I suppose, as far as you know, introducing releases to Mix, maybe until it's 
appropriate. But that's one of the like big questions, at least coming from where I'm coming from is like immediately I want to know how to get something online fast and easy. Of course, there's always Heroku and like Gig Elixir, which are, are so great. But yeah, it's there's so many different ways and opinions on how to deploy. I enjoy trying them all and seeing which one uh, fits best, I suppose. Yeah, it is interesting to see how many different options there are for releasing and deploying. And I think that's one of the things that I actually found really challenging when I was putting like my first Elixir projects ever into production. Um, I, I started off learning Elixir like very much as you know side project for fun. And then when I started working with it professionally and I was working with my team and we were trying to put, I believe at the time, a greenfield Elixir app into production. And I felt like really out of my depth when it came to the concept of even just the concept, right, of building a production release and deploying it because I'd worked previously with, you know, Ruby and JavaScript and and languages, which don't, you know, compile into your production release and kind of have such a drastic difference in terms of like how things run in production versus how things run in a test or a development environment. So I think one of the I guess like hiccups that I ran into and that still sometimes confounds me is how application configuration can really differ in between dev and production and Elixir and especially like reading environment variables. And that's something that I always kind of forget whether I want to, you know, do like a module attribute that results from application get env or turn it into a function and when you might use which. And yeah, there's just like all these little things that were first for me, I think, when it came to releasing Elixir and, and putting them out into the world. And so I guess I'm wondering if if you had any similar experiences when you were building your first Elixir releases or what stuff uh, kind of stuck out for you. Yeah, I, I think I've had a very similar experience as well. Yeah, I guess the sheer amount of options is is kind of difficult to pin down. On one hand, I guess it makes sense because like depending on your application, your even your business, your requirements, like I, I kind of understand how it's hard to recommend like one way to do things. So that does make sense. On the other hand, yeah, I was trying to get like a side project or something kind of simple online, like kind of like a hello world, like my, you know, my first Elixir project is online. That part is is a little bit tough to, um, tough to get past. Yeah. And I think for that reason, it came as like a relief to me when releases became part of Elixir, if it makes sense to say it that way, when you could, you know, mix release and build your release and that it was like, okay, finally, there's an opinionated way to do things. And there's still various options to choose from. But kind of going from like, oh, should it be e-deliver? Should it be distillery? Like, what are the differences? How do I evaluate what the right move is to, okay, well, Elixir says do it this way. Uh, I'll just follow the documentation, which, you know, as per usual is extremely extensive and very clear. And it could be because I was like less inexperienced at releasing Elixir by the time I was able to work with mixed release. But I think the first app that we released using that approach over distillery was like the least sticky process that I had experienced with an Elixir release, uh, not to knock distillery by any means, but yeah, I really, I really enjoyed working with it and just kind of going through those docs just made it feel so clear. Yeah, I definitely want to echo that, especially with uh, uh, the introduction of the releases, that EXS file, it made it so crystal clear exactly where your runtime configuration goes. Yeah, I think the, I think the developer experience definitely bumped up a notch after that, uh, that feature came in. Uh, you've also hinted at that you've been doing a bunch of NERFs projects. And if we're talking about uh, different ways to deploy Elixir, uh, that's a very unique one in its own right. Uh, have you looked into 
much of much of the nerves deployment and um, how uh, how that differs yeah that's that's another really fun thing uh, about the elixir ecosystem is is nerves is is very fun i have i have one of my hobbies is kind of hardware stuff doing kind of silly stuff around the house just just for fun and it's so great to just write elixir as is but as far as like the the dev experience with nerves i've been kind of working with it since the not since the beginning, but earlier on. And so things have even evolved since then. It's just really impressive to me. And I think part of it too, is that the targets for nerves are specified and, and clear as far as are you deploying to a Raspberry Pi or or whatever other board. So perhaps that's that's why it's it can be so streamlined and simple is just a limited set of places you can put the application. But yeah, I it's it's quite impressive that once you go through the motions of building and compiling the application, that burning firmware is so fast it can be done over the air. And yeah, I, I almost want that same experience for for the web. I just want to say, you know, something like mix burn my firmware or mix deploy and then specify my target and everything kind of goes. But again, it's hard to there's so many open-ended options and targets that that's probably impossible. You're giving me my next question for free, which is, have you looked at Nerve System EC2 at all, which is a Nerve system for deploying directly to Amazon's EC2 as if it were a hardware device, which I guess it is technically, <laughs> uh, but x86 and just deploying Nerve straight to it? Yeah, I actually hadn't heard of that. I just glanced at it briefly and I'm so glad somebody attempted to do that because <laughs> that's that's kind of the the like I don't know, really well defined and I don't know if opinionated is the right right word, but a very streamlined way to to deploy. I didn't even know that existed. That is awesome. Yeah, and I think it might be a little bit out of date because the people that worked on it I don't think I've updated it since uh, Nurse went over to VintageNet and that sort of thing. So there's a few things that are out of date, but I think the mo tricky parts with kernel extensions and making it compatible with Amazon stuff is already done. And I find it rather interesting that you could actually use Nerves Hub for pushing new server firmwares then, I guess, and they could just pull those. Uh, it's an interesting idea. And I, I really like the idea of running a very, very lean system with just the beam as the as basically the operating system on top of Lin, a very thin Linux. Yeah, that's I, I hadn't considered Nerves Hub in that equation. That that is quite interesting. Yeah, you could deploy your IoT devices and and the uh, like the web app at the same time. A lot of my I have a, a a lot of outdated hardware around my around my house, like first generation Raspberry Pis. So quite a bit of my my nerves, <laughs> I guess, experience lately has been a, a bit of trying to get things to work properly on really old hardware just because Raspberry Pis and things have progressed so much and the process is more streamlined and, and way more simplified with like newer hardware. So it's been kind of fun to, sort of fun to figure out why networking is hard to get working and things like that on old hardware. But in general, it's it's quite fun to just write Elixir exactly how you do anywhere else and run it on hardware and turn on and off lights or turn on and off fans and things like that. Yeah, and if... If you decide to do some writing on the topic of uh, deploying with nerves to AWS, please do let us know. <laughs> I'm very curious. Indeed, I'm, I'm curious. I was actually thinking about writing about nerves a bit more. Yeah, I know there's a ton of content out there, but it seems like uh, 
I don't know, people, there's so many interesting things you can do that uh, the topics and content are kind of endless. Yeah, and I think the deployment topic could definitely use a little bit of love. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so cool that you put together a couple different blog posts about deploying, you know, just Elixir web application so far, because I think it's not just an Elixir community problem. I think in any language, any framework, any community, like, you know, everyone's going to build their side projects or solve their interesting problems. And then that's like the fun, exciting thing to write about. And uh, I feel like there's always less content and less material and resources out there about deploying and actually getting your thing out into the world. Uh, And I think Terraform, which brings us to another area that you've written about, Terraform is definitely something that I think could use a ton more resources around, not necessarily in terms of documentation. You know, I think the Terraform documentation is mostly fine. I guess it's pretty good. But uh, I think people don't blog about it that often because it's kind of tricky. It's very specific to perhaps the problem you're trying to solve or the app you're trying to deploy. Uh, So I'm super excited to see that you've written something about Terraform and particularly leveraging Terraform to get your Elixir app out onto uh, looks like AWS and EC2. So yeah, first of all, like why Terraform? Why did you choose to work with Terraform? Well, for one thing, I'm not like an infrastructure, you know, engineer. The team we have at ConvertKit, they're wizards, and I've kind of learned a lot passively through seeing what they do. And yeah, Terraform is kind of a main uh, main tool we use as well. And yeah, so I guess it's a means of trying to learn more about it. And it's it's so interesting the concept of infrastructure as code. And kind of once you have this, I want to say cookbook or runbook, but that's kind of like Ansible language. Uh, but once you have the the series of tasks and um, resources defined that you can just do it over and over repeatedly, consistently. And in the case of using Terraform on AWS and EC2, you don't have to use the AWS interface at all. Once you kind of go through these motions, it's it's quite fun to run Terraform and yeah, you don't really have to do anything in the UI, which is quite fun. Yeah, I think anyone who's tried to navigate the AWS UI or just like the endless maze of links that reading the documentation for the UI will take you down, uh, you know, can sympathize with that. And I think I've had a similar experience with Terraform where if you, you know, worked in the AWS UI, you feel extremely confused and you're not really sure like how to click around and make sure you have all of your you know, boxes checked off, but being able to orchestrate with Terraform when you run those scripts and you actually see from code that you wrote, uh, like real physical things getting provisioned down the world, like especially for those of us that maybe don't have a DevOps background, like or are traditionally web devs, it's a really cool feeling. It's a really powerful experience. Yeah, that that's very true. It's it's very cool too that the same method and process can apply to so many things uh, that Terraform supports. You can do the same thing with DigitalOcean. And I imagine that process may be a bit more friendly just because the nature of, of, of how, how much you can do with AWS. But yeah, I was wondering if something like Terraform could bring, I don't know, some sort of simplified Elixir deployment as far as like predefined or pre-built like recipe to deploy to AWS or to deploy to DigitalOcean or things like that. Like part of that recipe would be, could be Terraform scripts to actually provision and build hardware. So taking us away from the infrastructure stuff for a little bit. So you mentioned that you primarily use Ruby during your day job and you came from a Ruby background. Uh, are there things from Ruby that you miss when programming Elixir and are, you know, kind of the other way around, are there things in Elixir that you wish were Ruby? Yeah, it, less missing from Ruby and more missing from Elixir on, on either end of that. Like I said, yeah, I, I guess most of my 
most of my career has been in Ruby and my, my transition into Ruby is sort of the approach I'm taking with Elixir. It's been, wasn't necessarily used at my day job at the time and the option to do so probably wasn't going to happen, which is a totally different scenario than I'm in now. So started learning it on the side, doing side projects, everything in Ruby until things progress from there. But yeah, I guess I guess that said, by that time, things were so opinionated and so established and there were, there's, were gems and ways to do everything that at least getting up and running and feeling like you're productive and are a Ruby developer was faster and yeah, maybe a little less of a learning curve. That said, coming from or learning like object-oriented programming and then kind of diving into functional programming, that's been the most valuable or interesting thing to me, especially learning kind of functional programming paradigms and concepts and thinking about that while writing OO. Things like not managing too much state. Yeah, just very simple functions that transform data rather than an object that who knows what can happen at any given point. Uh, so yeah, I guess things things I miss from Elixir specifically in Ruby, uh, the like immutability concepts, the pattern matching is is quite fun when not overused, I suppose. And the general speed of things, it's it's pretty fun to write tests and run tests like at the speed of thought, as opposed to quite a bit slower, depending on the size of your Ruby or Rails application. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to echo that. I uh, I felt totally different about testing until I came to Elixir. Uh, the testing experience in Elixir is just phenomenal. XUnit's a great tool. Uh, the fact that you can categorize what you're running async versus not is just, uh, yeah, you feel like you have superpowers anytime you're testing an Elixir app. Yeah, that's that's one of my, I suppose, pet peeves is the speed of a test suite. I don't know why, but it often often bugs me. Yeah, if, if test suites start to get too slow. And Elixir, it's I'm sure at some like you can make your test suite slow enough at some point or become slow. But yeah, maybe that's just the nature of like greenfield development. It's not going to be slow for perhaps a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the experience of running, let's say, your test suite in like your Rails monolith versus like your shiny new slim Elixir application. Like, of course, you have like big versus small, but yeah, I think overall the speed is you know there's just no question that it improves the development experience. But um, yeah, I mean, I think to kind of pick up on one thing that you mentioned, John, about sort of coming into Elixir from Ruby and coming into functional from OO, I've definitely had that experience. I think many of us have had that experience of coming from Ruby or other object-oriented languages into Elixir, trying to learn how to like think like a functional programmer and trying to start to tease out like what sort of design patterns and best practices from our OO life like still apply to, you know, programming in general and should be carried over to our life as Elixirs and what of them are kind of like holding us back or boxing us in or constraining our thinking when it comes to writing Elixir. And I think one of those has come up for me a lot in testing and it's the idea of like stubbing versus mocking and how to write, you know, Elixir tests or functional tests that still allow me to be like relatively thorough, you know, somewhat integration-y without, what is the thing? See, I can't even get it straight. You're supposed to treat mocks as a noun and not a verb, right? That's sort of like the Elixir or the more functional approach. But I think coming from, especially Ruby, especially from Rails, like we mock as a verb all the time. And that's certainly how I was kind of trained to think about uh, writing tests and especially writing end-to-end tests. So yeah, I think there's there's lots about Ruby that I love and that kind of sets you up for success. And there's a lot of it that has like really tripped me up and constrained my thinking as I've tried to come into Elixir. Well, I'm going to keep those mocks of the devil. Say <laughs> I, I think I was thinking about this recently, like the idea of like how I've historically sold 
Elixir to Rubyus is like, hey, it kind of like has clean syntax, low ceremony. A lot of the things we love about Ruby is like a approachable, good documentation, really amazing community. But I think one thing that I would kind of like, it's sort of a, maybe a misleading lead-in because when you get to Elixir, I almost feel like the the thing has to be, your thinking has to change to be like, okay, well now you're really focused on like your data structures. As opposed to designing objects, you're focused on these data, these rich data structures and these functions that take and transform data in and out as opposed to having this object that kind of does it internally and hides it and maybe exposes too much of it. Like there's just this data and things can deal with this data is one thing that I've, I've recently been kind of like as I reflecting, thinking about how I've sold this. It's like, oh, I noticed people are just making presenters or they're making these other like trying to mimic a lot of these OO patterns. And the reality is like, well, we have a solution for that. It's called a function. So you give it a function, it does your data, it gives you back just data, just data and functions. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I think that lends too to like not having to mock and stub things so much. Like a, a simple function taking in a data structure, it's quite easy to pass in arbitrary data in the test suite and you can be on your way. That's a concept I try to think about on the OO side a bit more or in Ruby as well is like if I'm writing this class or I really just need a function, but I'm going to write a class to or a module to give me that. Yeah, thinking about just passing in data and not managing a bunch of instance variables and transforming those and returning them. And yeah. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Groxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. I have a question about SMTP. Uh, there's a story in uh, Programming Erlang where uh, it's not the point of the story. It's not sort of like a big, a big deal. It just sort of says that Joe Armstrong writes, it's like we were working on something and we needed a DNS server. So I just wrote one really quickly in Erlang. And I kind of paused reading because I'm like, wait, what? How? You just wanted to write a DNS server? So I kind of posed the same question to you. Can you talk to me a little bit about SMTP, why you wrote an SMTP server? Are there any other things that could have sort of fit the bill? Was it super easy? Yeah, that's that's kind of another kind of fun, interesting thing about Elixir, or like my readings and delving into it is it's very interesting to like address other protocols with Elixir besides HTTP, perhaps. And coming from ConvertKit, a primarily email marketing company, I'm very intimate and familiar with email and SMTP and how all that works. And in my mind, I was like, oh, like kind of email this sort of like, pipeline processing sort of concept seems pretty suited for Elixir Erlang or that environment. So yeah, again, in an effort to learn about primarily like what is it like to do something with a different protocol with Elixir, I started creating a side project that would take an email, do something with it, and then send it on its way. And Erlang being the like robust or Erlang having like such a uh, a wealth of tools. There's there's a library called Gen SMTP that is almost entirely the SMTP protocol implemented in Erlang. So yeah, using that and implementing like the server as an OTP behavior using Gen SMTP, it's it's quite simple and quite nice and is very kind of fun. 
I'm both surprised and not surprised that there's a uh, SMTP library in OTP. Yeah, it's it's nearly. I believe. I mean, for my purposes of actually properly receiving email over SMTP and sending it, it's it's all there. I believe in the documentation. It states it's not like a full mail server. So I mean, there's no like mailbox or inbox management and things like that. Like, uh, oh my god, it doesn't do IMAP and POP and that sort of thing. Exactly. Yes. I'm not super surprised to hear that. Was it Joe you said that implemented a DNS server just because yeah. he needed one? Part of it, I figure, is this was probably back when implementing a DNS server was simpler because mm -hmm. you didn't really do all the abuse mitigation and that sort of stuff that typically SMTP and DNS are big sources of Targets, the, yeah of abuse these days because they're very old protocols and security wasn't part of the design and they're trying to add it after the fact which is always harder that sort of leads me into from what i understand you work with spam and abuse prevention at convertkit uh, and i wanted to see if you could give our listeners and the elixir community a small primer on uh, what things should developers look out for when it comes to building software to avoid opening the door for spam and abuse? What are good practices that you find to avoid these things? That's, that's a great question. And yeah, that's my primary focus. We have an entire team dedicated to at ConvertKit focused on determining what qualifies as spam or abuse and how, how to handle that, how to mitigate it, how to protect our customers from things like that and how to protect our own reputation as like a email service provider reputation is a, a very big deal. So if your platform sends primarily spam email clients will stop accepting your email, which would be very bad for us. But as far as uh, recommendations, I think there's a couple of general ones and then sort of depending on your business needs or, or your platform or what your application does, there's different vectors. But one of the, some of the big stuff for us is we primarily distribute custom content or open content, uh, like wh whatever the customer decides to distribute, we will do that, just the nature of email. So yeah, I, if custom content can be used and is a factor, just be aware of the implications of that. And one of our main tools actually to help us is our terms of service as far as what's acceptable, what's allowed. And depending on your industry, there's standards. So it's, it's not like, you know, you have to create this stuff out of thin air and, and be worried about legal um, things of that sort. Yeah. And then uh, another big thing for us is being aware of automated. If input were automated, what would happen? Um, so what happens if this or that endpoint is consecutively hit over and over? Are you able to stop that if it does happen? We deal with people embedding forms on their sites. So our endpoints are distributed wherever, or access to our endpoints, I suppose, are wherever people embed forms. So if somebody's site gets hit by some odd bot thing, there's a chance it will hit our form as well and then come back to our application and, and hit our endpoints as well. Yeah, so just being aware of the, uh, the implications if that does happen and can you prevent it if that's relevant. And again, on the subject of bots, if they are relevant, we experience, like I said, forms being hit or found by bots and, and submitted and, and abused in that regard. And then also we experience password or credit card stuffing on our, our login forms and our um, like payment forms. So basic stuff like rate limiting or using something like fail to ban goes a long way there. Yeah. And kind of the simple one is rate limiting all credit card forms if possible. 
Even if you do use a platform like Stripe, you can still get in a bad way with credit card companies. There's a fun pattern of credit card testing or card stuffing, they call it, where somebody will bring hundreds or thousands of credit card numbers to your form, submit them and see what happens. And the, the implications of that can be very bad um, depending on how far that can go. That's a lot of good advice. Sounds like I'm slightly happy I don't have your job, I think. Yeah, content distribution is, is the big thing. Yeah, and like I said, we actually rely on our terms of service mostly. We do do a lot of machine learning and things like that to, to detect content um, that our terms of service disallows. So there's a big technical side to that as well. But yeah, implications of distributing content is a big one. Yeah, your list definitely brought me back to some dark times. When I used to work at a, a content distribution company, music distribution platform, and I would say that like pretty much the entire time that I worked there, which was almost two years, we were basically just living under a slight reign of terror of just constant DDoSing from like various Eastern European locales. And it just got to be sort of a fact of life that you would sort of start your day by like checking out what was coming in traffic wise and making updates to fail to ban and leveraging various AWS, you know, whitelisting, blacklisting strategies. And uh, we definitely had it under control, like as a result of a lot of the tools that you mentioned, but yeah, the struggle is definitely real. Yes, it is indeed. Yeah, there's there's quite a few like third-party tools now too to, to help with that. A- AWS has a, a quite a few things built in. We'll lean on Cloudflare for quite a bit of things as well. They've they've come out with a ton of features uh, to help with things like mitigating bot attacks, detecting them, even hand, handling things like blocking IPs or IP ranges. So th- those are some tools or levers we can pull in, in that scenario where there's a hotspot coming from somewhere. We can at least put the brakes on it until we figure out what happens and it doesn't melt down infrastructure. Yeah, we took a, a similar approach where you would like identify these hotspots, essentially blacklist them. And then something that would happen as a consequence of that is we would of course be disallowing traffic from like actual customers. So a strategy that we 